Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Janice Beckett who is the Director of Chemical Dependency Services at the Cleveland Clinic slash Akron General Edwin Shaw Rehabilitation Hospital in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. Janice, welcome. Thank you. Okay, nice to have you here. Thank you. So you got into the field of chemical dependency services because of your personal experience. So let's start there. Okay, so um, at an early age... um, like many teenagers do, I experimented with alcohol. And um, one of the things that I found alcohol did for me was it made me feel like um, I fit in. I was never comfortable in my own skin. And I always felt separated from people or like I was less than. So what alcohol allowed was for me to feel like I fit in and Mm -hmm. to kind of um, uninhibit me. How old were you then when you started? 15. 15. Okay. Okay, go on. So from an early age, I knew that I didn't drink like other people because once I started to drink, I couldn't stop. Um, It was never enough. And um, if you've ever been around addicts or alcoholics, you've heard them say, you know, one's too many and a thousand's never enough. I couldn't stop. There was something in my brain that said, keep on drinking. Um, And I would drink to excess every time I drank. Um, that feeling that I had of inadequacy never went away. So my way to cope with that was that quick fix was to self-medicate. Um, that led me down after several years, um, of a path to other drugs, other heavier drugs. Like what? Um, like cocaine Hmm. and eventually crack. And by then... I had realized that, you know, I didn't have a choice in the matter. Um, Let's revisit your timeline. How old were you then? So I was in my early 30s. Early 30s. When okay, I so did cocaine for the first time. So we're talking about really 15, 16 years. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So it wasn't long after I tried cocaine that I graduated to crack. And that was kind of like all she wrote. Um, for two years, I spiraled downhill very, very quickly. So by all she wrote, you mean that you really 
got in the, the grips of addiction yes. with cocaine and you just yes. wanted that. Yes. As an alcoholic, um, and I didn't realize, <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't identify as an alcoholic at that time. And I'll tell you why. Because mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't have to drink when I woke up. I wasn't under a bridge somewhere drinking out of a paper bag. So how could I be an alcoholic? Mm-hmm. But I always knew that there was something wrong because I didn't drink like other people. I always wanted to drink. Other people didn't. I always wanted to have five or six to their one. You know, that's not normal behavior. Mm -hmm. But I still didn't identify as an alcoholic. It wasn't until I started into the heavier drugs that, um, and I was able to function while I was drinking, hold down a job, all of that. So high functioning alcoholic. Yes. Yeah. So when I got into cocaine and crack is when I stopped being able to function. Um, hold on a job, take care of a family and all of those things. Um, all of those responsibilities started going by the wayside and the drug replaced. How long did it take you to recognize the fact that you couldn't fulfill your functions, your daily functions Um, and obligations to your family? A few months, a few months of actually doing, starting cocaine. And what was the moment where it became clear to you that, uh, the moment that it became clear was shortly after I started smoking crack that my son was my son who was six was supposed to get off of the bus at about three o'clock and at about two o'clock something in my brain switched on and the only thing I can liken it to is a light switch went on and it said you need to go get drugs and I I was literally, it's, it's odd to, to try to explain, but I was literally arguing with myself, but no, my son's going to get off the bus in an hour. I can't drive to Akron. I was living about 20 miles away from Akron at this time. I would get my drugs in Akron and go back home and use. Mm. I can't go to Akron because my son's getting off the bus, but it's like, no, this, there was a compulsion in me that was uncontrollable. And at that point, I knew and it scared me. But in that moment, I wasn't able to control it. I called my mother. I made up a lie. I asked her to get my son off the bus. And I went to Akron to get what I needed. And I probably didn't even come home that night because at this point, there were times when I wasn't coming home. That's when I knew. What did you do when you didn't come home? Uh, What was I doing? Yeah. I was getting high. And I wanted to go home, but I couldn't. Mm. It's because you were high. Because I wanted to continue getting high. Once the oh, once, once you started I was that evening. high, yeah. that that's it. Nothing was going to stop me from continuing to get high. And it wasn't a matter of that I didn't love my child. It had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with the disease of addiction acts like a puppet master. Once it grabs a hold of you, it dictates what you're going to do, going to do next. So somehow you recognize the fact that it had grabbed a hold of mm-hmm. you oh, and yeah. it was calling all the shots. Yes. So what happened next? So what happened next is um, things got worse. Um, my son ended up getting taken away from me, you know, by my ex-husband and my mom. And, you know, rightfully so. Um, I stopped coming home altogether. I didn't see my son for two years. Um, I ended up on the streets of Akron. Um homeless, living in abandoned houses or in dope houses. Um, 
and ended up pregnant. Um, and as much shame as I felt for not going home to see my son, because what would happen is I would have moments of clarity when I was out there. I would get sober for a day or get, or just, I wouldn't have anything. So I would wake up, I'd be sober and I'd want to go home, but I couldn't because of the wreckage that I had left behind me was too much to bear. And the disease is now also calling me go self-medicate. So when I ended up pregnant, it was kind of a new level of shame that I was feeling. And I literally could not stop using, even though I was pregnant. So then what? So you went into what rehab, if I could ask? Edwin Shaw. Edwin Shaw. Okay. All right. Where you work today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how long did you stay in, in rehab? I so was did in, you actually have to detox? You, you, you didn't no. because you'd been in jail. You detoxed, right? I, I was in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> however, there is no detox for cocaine. Got so, um, but I was in rehab for five months. Now at that time, Edwin Shaw was only a 28 day program, but because I was pregnant, I got to stay longer. My daughter was born while I was at Edwin Shaw, um, and I got to bring her back with me. You were in for five months Mm -hmm. into rehab, and then what next? So after I left rehab, I went to a housing program called um, HM Life Opportunity Services. So community housing? Humility of Mary Housing Incorporated. It's a Catholic Hmm. um, housing. For women? It's um, for single parent families, mm. and they have furnished apartments mm. that you can that you live in. Um, it was a one to two year program. I was there for a year and ten months. <clears throat> so, was me. it related at all to recovery or not? Um, you could be in recovery to get in this. It was mm-hmm. basically people are who are homeless. Yeah. So, okay. some of us were in recovery. Mm-hmm. Others were coming out of other situations, maybe domestic violence, or maybe they just ended up homeless due to economic issues. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there were there was kind of a an array. Yeah. Um, but I had my own apartment that was furnished, and it's a highly structured. It was a highly structured program. I had a caseworker that met with me every week. I had to go to group every week. I had to do recovery meetings. Um, there was a lot of things that I had to do in early recovery, and it was it was difficult. Okay, it was very difficult. Okay. Um, and I'm not going to lie. And I tell people that I get to work with people in early recovery today through my church. I volunteer. At, at, I'm assistant director of the Women's Recovery House for the Community of Christ Church, ARC Services, okay. ARC Recovery Services. Yeah. And I get to work with women in early recovery. So I let them know all the time that, you know, early re- early recovery is not easy. There's a lot of things that people in early recovery have to do. And that's something that families need to understand is that just because somebody goes to treatment, that's like a start. Treatment's a springboard. It's not the end of the story. What else do they need to do? So people in early recovery need to be around other people who are in recovery, other healthy people who are in recovery. They need to continue going to meetings. They need to get connected. They need to stay connected. They need we can't be around the same people, places, and things that we used to go around and expect to remain clean and sober. Don't families know this? Well, no. If you don't know about recovery and you don't understand it, you know, one would think, a lot of people think that, well, you're not using anymore, so you're cured. Well, that's not correct. If we think of the the drug as a symptom of the disease, 
it, it might be easier. So I can put down one, one substance and substitute it for something else. It's not the drug that's the issue. It's the brain disease that's the issue. And that has to be kind of tended to on a daily basis. Just like a diabetic has to watch what they eat. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just yep. because we've identified, oh, this person's a diabetic, I'm going to give you one shot of insulin and you're cured. Right. That doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much the same with an addict. We don't just send you to rehab, remove the substance and you're cured. It's something that we have to work on on a daily basis. And early pe- people who are early in recovery are the most <clears throat> vulnerable because they're starting to feel feelings that they have not felt because they've been medicating them. So they're very, they're, they're very emotionally raw and their body is going through a lot of healing. Hmm. Okay. So um, the family needs to know that and then passively support them or actively support them? Actively support them. How? So there's a fine line between nagging, right? Yeah. And being controlling and being codependent Mm -hmm. and encouraging them and supporting them. So if the, if the addict is saying, you know, I have to go to my meeting tonight, I would encourage the family to say, oh, okay, well, that's good. You go ahead and go. Not, well, you went to a meeting last night. Why do you have to go again tonight? Or can't you just miss one? Or, you know, alcohol wasn't your problem. Can't you have a glass of wine? Things like that. No. Because that probably happens every day, doesn't it? It probably does. Yeah. An addict is an addict, and it doesn't matter the substance that they're putting in their body. Wine, marijuana, those things are not okay. Just because somebody was an opiate addict does not mean that they can now safely drink or safely smoke pot or... No. So how do you turn the light on to family members that insist, no, it's okay if they have a beer? No, you know, look, we're going to go over here. We've got these plans this night. He doesn't need to go to these meetings. How do you deal with that? How do you get through? You know, it's almost like I can, I could say what I just said Mm -hmm. until they've lived through it. It's hard to explain, you know, it's because they don't want to believe that their loved one is maybe like that other person or can't, can't be cured, that there might be something wrong with them. And I think until they witness it firsthand, it's difficult for them to understand. Yeah. Have you been exposed, and you probably have, to groups like, um, you know, Narconon, Al-Anon, mm-hmm. All of the others. So those are um, pretty good support programs, I'm told, in terms of teaching the family uh, how to you know, manage, how to, mm-hmm. uh, in essence, navigate for themselves mm-hmm. through this process and um, by doing so, better support their, their loved one. What experience have you had with those exposure and, and what comments would you have about programs like Narconon? So I've been to Al-Anon. Okay. And Al-Anon is a great resource. Um, I've not been to Narconon, so I can't speak about that program, but I've heard it's similar. Yeah. That they use the 12 steps. 12 steps for families yes. for narcotic right. abuse. Yeah. So the thing that family members would want to try to remember is that they can't control the addict. So going to Al-Anon or going to Narconon, 
helps that person or that individual deal with how they are reacting to their loved one who is in active addiction. That they need to take care of themselves first and separate and not become enmeshed with the person who's sick because this is a family disease. And a lot of times when you have an alcoholic, an alcoholic or an addict in the family, the family kind of revolves around that person. And it's, it can be a very enmeshed dynamic. So it kind of helps. Elanon and Narconon can help that person separate themselves and love from a distance and learn how to not enable. Okay. Um, so what should people know about the resources that are available for substance abuse disorder through Edwin Shaw? Well, we offer chemical dependency assessments. We offer intensive outpatient therapy three days a week, three hours per session. We offer aftercare. Um, we offer medicated assisted treatment, um, Suboxone and Vivitrol. And we offer family education for our clients' families who are in, um, in our program. The family can come get educated. And then we also offer a Project Dawn Clinic, which is um, free Narcan. Mm-hmm. And that's a grant through the state of Ohio and the Summit County ADM Board. Okay. So um, insurance-wise? Insurance, we're contracted with most major medical, Medicare, Medicaid, and then for Summit County Indigent, um, the ADM Board will pay for them on a sliding fee scale. Ah, okay, good. So you're directly connected with the ADM, and so um, even if they don't have insurance, there is some possibility Absolutely, to yes. bring them through Edwin Shaw. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So Janice, if you had unlimited resources mm-hmm. to fight the opioid epidemic, what would you do? Well, you know, prevention, I think prevention and education is huge. Um. Someone was saying in a meeting I was at yesterday that, you know, when you go to these fairs in different places, you've got all these treatment centers, Mm -hmm. but only maybe one booth for education. Mm. It's really important that our children understand the implications of what it means to even pick up one time. Uh, Um, That to educate just the general public and parents that just because you talk to your child about drugs and alcohol doesn't mean they're going to go do it. You know, they're already hearing about it. Sure. They're exposed to it in the media. Exactly. Everywhere. So talk to them about it. Um, That's one thing. Now, for the people who are already in the throes of addiction, I would love to see not only more beds open up, you know, like the ADM detox, because they can take people, you know, who are withdrawing from opiates, but Mm -hmm. um, more recovery housing, more inpatient rehab. Um, you know, it's really important for a person to be able to have a place to go where they're removed from their environment. You know, it's, it's good that we can do outpatient, but it's been my experience that if you can actually take the person and temporarily remove them from their environment to where they can get some footing under them, that's a start. So residential. But from there, to put them right back in that environment 28 days later or 60 days later, it's still, what are their chances, you know? So after residential care or even after a successful outpatient stint, recovery housing 
is huge. And I say that because I went through a housing program. Mm -hmm. That was my experience. Had I gone straight from rehab to my being on my own, it would have been too much for me. Mm -hmm. It's just too much. I needed that extra support. And I get to witness it in other women through ARC Recovery Services, where I volunteer as the, you know, I'm the assistant um, director of the women's house. Those women, a lot of times, are coming out of the criminal justice system or coming out of residential rehab. And, and we offer them six months to a year of supportive housing. And it's not just a house where they can rent a room and kind of do whatever they want. It's an actual program. Mm-hmm. And they're held accountable. You know, they've got more freedom than they do in residential care. And we don't do treatment, but they're expected to do certain things. We have weekly house meetings. So more of those programs need to be available, made available for people. Okay. So um, if you're looking for a program like that, how would you go about vetting that, selecting those? Um, I think it's really what what the person's looking for. Um, like ours, for example, is Christian-based. So if somebody likes that aspect – then, you know, that's what they would do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's others out there as well. So the ADM board has really great, a really great resource page. If you just, you know, Google ADM in Summit County, mm-hmm. they have pretty much all the resources laid out and a lot of recovery houses laid out. Okay. So which program or programs are more effective, would you say, and why? Medication-assisted treatment or abstinence? I would say it depends on the individual. Um, I understand that opiate withdrawal is very, very uncomfortable. So to use medicated assisted treatment for a short time to get that person, to get that person through the initial withdrawal, you know, is, is great to stay on medication though, for an extended period of time is you could just be substituting one drug for another, because what we, what we want to do is maybe let the person stay on medication long enough to get through treatment so they can learn other coping skills and eventually then kind of wean them off of all medications. Um, Some people want to come in and regardless of their drug of choice, do abstinence based. They don't want anything. Others want to stay on the medication. Unfortunately, a lot of people want to say, Oh, if I just use Suboxone or if I just get the Vivitrol shot, then I'm cured. And that's not that's not the case. Why is that? Because again, mm-hmm. this is a disease of the brain. So, but with Vivitrol, mm-hmm. you can't get high anymore. So, why wouldn't that cure them? Right, with opiates. Right. Okay. So, I don't know if you've ever heard of the term "dry drunk." Just mm. because somebody doesn't drink doesn't mean they're in recovery. Just because somebody doesn't use doesn't make them in recovery. Being sober and being in recovery aren't one and the same. Being sober means you're no longer using that substance. Being in recovery means that you've made a conscious effort to change your way of life and to change your thinking. That's where we want to get to with people. Okay. So um, for the people that you've seen that have been very successful in recovery, Mm -hmm. what were their keys? What are the most important teaching points that you've observed? So um, I would say first and foremost, staying connected staying connected to their um, sober support group, whatever that may be. Because as soon as people start to drift away for a length of time, inevitably, they end up going back out and relapsing. So staying connected is huge. 
um, and being honest with their support group. You know, if they're feeling a certain kind of way, if they start getting a lot of cravings, if certain things start happening in their life that might trigger them, high emotional, you know, it could be good emotional, it could be upsetting emotional, any kind of triggers like that they want to discuss with their support group. So staying connected is huge. Um, doing the next right thing, whether we want to or not, is doing huge. Doing the next right mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? So my very first sponsor said to me, I was overwhelmed. And she said, Janice, all you have to do is the next right thing and things that are bad for you will naturally fall away. What I mean is if I have a decision in front of me, what do I do? What is the right thing to do? Even though I may not feel like doing it, I do it anyway, because it's the right thing. Hmm. And all I have to do is make that one decision. And if there's times where I really don't know what the right decision is, that's when I consult my support group. Oh, so if you need some advice on something, you have no hesitation. You reach out to them. I do. I do. And the reason is because in my particular support group, we've all in one way, shape or form been to the end of ourselves. We've all hit that rock bottom. Regardless of how far down the scale each of us have gone, doesn't matter. We've all been there. So there's no judgment. I can go to several people in my group and talk to them about anything and know that I'm not going to be judged and know that the advice they're going to give me is going to have my best interest and there's no ulterior motives. But it's up to me as the recovering person to reach out. Seems everyone could use that in their absolutely. lives. Absolutely. Recovery the, absolutely. or not. Absolutely. Yeah. I will say the 12 steps works for everyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, Janice, what final thoughts would you like to share about the opioid epidemic in general, or maybe how our listeners can make a difference in their communities? So, I would say, as far as the opioid epidemic, um, I would say just watch the medications that that you're taking or that their loved ones are taking. Um, Try to learn as much as they can about the disease of addiction. Um, Talk to their families about it. Talk to their kids about it. Don't be afraid. Start at an early age. Start at an early age. Understand that an addict is most of the times a very sensitive person. And a lot of times they're highly intelligent too. And I think that those are sometimes things that people don't understand. You know, I'm people who are more sensitive, right? And who don't know how to cope are people that use because they want to feel better. So you have a lot of sensitive people and you've got a lot of highly intelligent people that are very resourceful. And if we can kind of help them to help support them in channeling all of that into the, a positive avenue, then we're going to be better off. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's uh, been a real pleasure. Thank you. Okay. All right. We've been meeting today with Janice Beckett, who's the Director of Chemical Dependency Services at Cleveland Clinic slash Akron General Edwin Shaw, their rehabilitation hospital in uh, Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for listening to this podcast.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.